Welcome to a very special edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series. On this edition, we had the honor of interviewing legendary Kansas City post-bop saxophonist Bobby Watson. During a candid conversation, Bobby spoke to Neon Jazz about a life well-lived in the jazz world and all the tributaries that have led to his legendary status, especially here in Kansas City. He spoke about his time with the Jazz Messengers and all the sage advice Art Blakey bestowed upon him, the many gigs and musicians he has played over the years, his newest album, Cash Checking Day, in honor of Dr. King's 50th anniversary of his I Have a Dream speech, along with his thoughts on the Renaissance culture of jazz going down here in Kansas City during 2014. He's a musician, an educator, and a great, great guy. He has a lot to say. Dig it, my friends. Hello. Mr. Watson, it's Joe Domino with Neon Jazz. Hi, Joe. How you doing? Hey, good, man. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. I love your ringer. It's great. Oh, yeah, bird. I dig it. So, first thing I want to find out about your bio and your lineage, you were born in Lawrence, raised in Bonner Springs. What made you want to go to the University of Miami? Um, well, let's see. Uh, after Bonner Springs, my father moved us to... Minneapolis. So I did junior high and high school in Minneapolis. Okay. And after that, we moved back down to Kansas in 1971. And I had a uh, scholarship at a college up there. So I ended up coming back to Kansas City, and I went to two years at Kansas City Community College. And during that time, I met I, met, uh, I had met Pat Matheny, and uh, uh, and he was going to the University of Miami. And then also I met uh, Clifton Williams, Dr. Clifton Williams, and he was a composition teacher in Miami. And I was set to try to go down to North Texas State, but uh, Pat uh, told me that, no, Miami's much hipper. You know, they had the Miami Beach scene, you can gig and stuff. And then meeting uh, 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 Dr. Clifton Williams, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and he was at Miami. And uh, Jerry Coker was there at the time, and... Uh, Although he had, he had actually resigned, so when I got down there, he wasn't there. But still, Whit Seidner was there and uh, all the great teachers that were down there. And um, it was a great place to go. And uh, it, it was a, uh, a heck of a class that we were down there with. Bruce Hornsby and uh, 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 the Dixie Dregs. Um, um, Jocko was in town. He was there. And, uh, Iris Sullivan, Gil Goldstein, uh, Danny Gottlieb. Uh, there were a lot of uh, people there. Curtis Lundy, Carmen Lundy. Uh, just so many people, so many people that were there, you know, during that time. And it, sure. it, it was a really good move. But it was uh, Pat, Pat Matheny, you know, I, I, uh, I would go to his house and he was uh, teaching me jazz uh, standards time and we were hanging out listening to records and stuff and uh and he was going there and he, when he'd come home from christmas break we'd speak and he'd tell me how how cool miami was and it was more combo orientated than big bad yeah sure mm-hmm. so it sounds like a mecca in south beach oh it was something else that time you know mark colby not i started thinking of the names hiram bullock um you know just so many folks there uh, that went on to do things. You know, that was a heck of a time to be there. Absolutely. So, 
let me go back to the beginning of your career. What is your earliest recollection of your first live performance? Or in the beginning, what was it like to climb on stage for the first time? Oh, well, I was in high school. My first uh, uh, score was a talent show. We put a band together for a talent show, and then we really went over real big. And then we got our first paying gig <laughs> uh, at, the, at the YMCA for, for a dance party. Because we were doing... Uh, uh, I guess we were kind of like pre-fusion, I mean, uh, pre-smooth uh, jazz because we would take the hits of the day and I'd play the melodies on my saxophone. We didn't have a vocalist, you know, so I would play the melodies on my saxophone, whether it be James Brown or, or Marvin Gaye or Gladys Knight or Stevie Wonder, you know, and so we started moving out like that. And then I, I met this guy, uh, Solomon Hughes on guitar, who was in the West Montgomery, and, and we started, I started uh, moving into jazz more, you know, but I was always improvising out front, trying to uh, be the, the, the soloist. And uh, my uh, high school band director, uh, uh, Leonard, Leonard King, he uh, uh, he uh, turned his American, uh, he, he was our history teacher, and he turned his uh, uh, jazz history course, I mean, his American history course into a jazz history course. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, based on your early gigs, how do you approach the stage today versus the way you did when you started out? Well, when I started out, I was just, I was really happy to be there. And I remember the first time I played in some uh, clubs when I got back to Kansas City. Um, you know, I I was always happy to be up there, but I didn't get the deep, deep dedication and devotion to the bandstand until I got with our Blakey. And then, he, you know, how sacred the bandstand is, and you don't bring your troubles up, you know, if you're, if you're not feeling good, or you're hungry, or you're tired, you let all that go. If you had a bad day, you leave all your troubles by the side of the bandstand, and when you come up on the bandstand, you just stay to make music, because tomorrow's not promised. You know, and as long as you can walk off that bandstand and give yourself an A for effort, you get another chance to play again. And Absolutely. so that's when it really got deep. So when I go on the bandstand, I, I guess it's kind of sort of self-hypnosis kind of thing. You know, you get on, you put your neck strap on, and, and the, once, once the horn's hanging around your neck, you're you're another person, you know? Yeah. You just you give it your all. You know, if your lip hurts or it doesn't matter. When you get up there, you just like, nothing else matters. Because Art used to get up there, when he started playing, he didn't really care about us. I mean, you know, he listened to us and played with us, but when he got up there, he was up there for him. Yeah. And he, and he would just look to the sky and start playing them drums, and, and then you either had to uh, get on board or get left behind. <laughs> so what, what is it that Art really taught you about life and music? What's the most important things he taught you? Well, that your horn is your offense and defense against life or with life, and also that how to read the audience, how you're going to start off your set, or your show, are you going to start off big, are you going to start off soft and build, are you going to hit them over the head first and then go down the pacing and the arc of a, of a show, and also how to uh, uh, time the show, also how to be an artist, how to greet people, and how to... Uh, uh, embrace people, you know, 
And it didn't matter whether you thought they were a good person or not. That's as an artist, you're it's like a finishing school. Like they send, you know, the NBA guys and the professional athletes when they draft them out of college, they go to this uh, school. They got the old pros there, and they teach them how to sign autographs and how to deal with the public. And so I learned all that from art too, how to deal with the public and and uh, how and still uh, uh, keep uh, your um, um, Sovereignty. Uh, when you come off the bandstand, because uh, I learned from art, when you come off the bandstand, don't go directly into the crowd. Go straight back to the dressing room. If there's no dressing room, go in the bathroom and go in a, a stall and just shut the door and just decompress, you know, because you need that time to think about what you just did and what you just played. And then after you decompress, then you reemerge into the crowd, you know? Right on. Like that, the ritual of it. Mm-hmm. So... Your latest album, which I love, Cash Checking Day, is a tribute in honor of the 50th year anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's March on Washington. Great CD. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, I wanted to uh, uh, make a, uh, a, a statement record, uh, and it's almost like an opera um, or a play in 15 acts, and and to make a statement and use spoken words for the first time. I've done those, some of them songs on the CD before, um, uh, like Dark Days and 40 Acres and a Mule, but without the uh, spoken word. And I've done, you know, in my title, Blues of Hope, uh, those have been uh, uh, socially conscious titles with the themes, but the, with the words added to some of them, uh, it 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 it, uh, it illuminated it, and I think what it has done is given the, uh, the the CD a life outside of just being a jazz record. Yeah, because uh, we're probably going to do some historical black college tours, and we're going to uh, uh, the, uh, the NAACP is in town this week, and they want me to go on the air and talk about the record, and, and uh, so it's, I'm getting uh, uh, invitations. To, to perform this so that the young people can hear this mm-hmm. and hear the story. A lot of it's metaphor. Uh, uh, so, you know, some of it's uh, humorous. Some of it's uh, um, uh, like playing the dozens, like um, um, uh, my song, where he talks about that, you know, a, a young man going through and getting the hoses sprayed on him, and he, he told the mud to go fetch, you know, and they sick the uh, tag dogs on him. You know, and uh, the, the, the clan tried to burn a cross on my lawn, but I went out and had a barbecue. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it's like, it's kind of like that. And you got Dark Days, which started during the apartheid era. That's when I wrote that song, when Nelson was still in jail. Yeah. And, and but then that song, Dark Days, kept coming back during the Balkans and then during uh, the different conflicts around the world, the song keeps coming back. And so... Glenn North, uh, we talked about it. He put some words to it, and I wanted to let him do his thing from his perspective, too. And But I just told him what I was trying to do is to make a statement in honor of the 50th anniversary, which, by the way, when they talk about the speech, they always talk about the uh, I Have a Dream part, which he had done a month earlier in Detroit. Yeah. And actually, as I researched it, he had probably been working on that. He'd done it maybe eight or nine times before. And so that part was not originally part of his speech, 
the bulk of his speech was about the moral check that was written by the founders of the uh, of the country that all men are created equal and and uh, deserve uh, inalienable rights. That was the moral check that was written, and those people came to Washington today to cash that check, which Martin said in his speech had come up insufficient funds. Right on. So the, they never really talk about that part of the speech. They always, when they talk about the March on Washington, they go right to the last part of the speech, which was often, which was improv because Mahalia Jackson was tell, was egging him on, saying, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. So he went into it because she had heard it before. Yeah. And so they, he went into that, and that's how it finished. And that's when they talk about that speech. They never talk about the bulk of what that speech was. Right, sure. And that's why Check Cashing Day is relating to the 90, 95% of the speech that we really don't talk about. And you can't really see that speech. Yeah. Uh, they played it once uh, on uh, on the day of the anniversary of the march on MSNBC because they had to get the rights to that. Yeah. The only thing that's free for, for everybody is to see the uh, I Have a Dream part. But the, you have to get permission from the estate to broadcast the entire speech. Yeah. He went right after that speech. They went like right across the street and, and, and copyrighted it. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, I learned a lot. You yeah. know? And they were young people, too. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's I mean, great. gosh, they were in their late 20s, and they were in their 20s, and, you know, cause Martin didn't make it to 40. I mean, these guys were young people, and they had such purpose. Yeah. And another thing, you know, so I'm just, all this I want to try to get out to the young people, you can do something, you know? Except change. It's not about drive-by shootings and gangs and stuff. And you, you got to read your history and 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 realize what a glorious history that the African American uh, 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 culture has given to this country, to, so that you don't, so you have some pride and realize what young people did. They were all young people in their twenties, yeah, thirties when they did this. And so, like, the young people get a little bit uh, complacent. Because, you know, we don't have to eat at separate counters and drink in separate water uh, uh, fountains and all that kind of stuff. We're there. Everybody's got a fair chance to make it now. But the, the, the struggle is not over yet. And now it's including Latinos and Native Americans and, you know, it's just grown in Gandhi, what he went through, and Mandela. It's just, you know, it's just what, what it is. It continues, you know. Because Absolutely. when Martin was... Uh, uh, marching and doing this, everybody going. What do you want? You guys aren't you guys aren't slaves anymore. You're free, uh, and, and nobody. You know, it's like, what do you want? You know, so then I go. We got a black president now, but what do you want? You know, well, we still. It's not over, right? You know, and it's not that we're angry or nothing. It's just like, no, it's not over yet, right? It's Absolutely. So, speaking of youth and opportunity, you were overseeing uh, uh, what I would consider a renaissance in Kansas City jazz, a scene that's thriving. How does it feel to be a part of that, bringing people like Herman Mahari to Kansas City and watching that grow? What is that like? It's amazing. I mean, our students are like part of the fabric of the jazz community, and and uh, fortunately they've been embraced by the older uh, generation, and they use them a lot to, to inspire them which is like a natural occurrence because the reason Art Blakey had his jazz messengers because he surrounded himself with young people to inspire him. 
Yeah. And so it's happening here in Kansas City that the older musicians are hiring the young ones because they learn the music, they're enthusiastic, they show up on time, they put all, they, they give their all, and it inspires them to uh, uh, impart their knowledge and their wisdom and their experiences by way of their music onto these young people. So we have a genuine exchange of ideas and sharing between the generations going on here in Kansas City now. And it's amazing. It's, it's beyond my wildest dreams. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's a great scene. One thing, too, that, that, that you know, you've played with so many people throughout the years. What have you taken from what you've experienced on and off stage as a man and a jazz guy and given to your students? The most positive band director I've, I mean, band leader I work with is R. Blakey, and he loves young people. And I got that love myself. And also, I learned that to let them, let them uh, give them guidance, but let them go. Let them fly and be themselves. Yeah. But you have to give them guidance. You know, Art used to say, there's nothing wrong with being young. You just need a little guidance, because some of the older folks would be down on the young people. You go, no, ain't nothing wrong with being young. You just need some guidance. Yeah. And that's what they're there for. And so I learned that from him. I try to take that into the classroom and, and, and get with what they're doing. Because, I mean, Art, Art went to see Purple Rain before I did. Yeah. With Prince. He goes, man, have you seen Prince's Purple Rain? You know? <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I, you know, and after the gig, man, he would get into a car. We'd be in Europe somewhere. He'd jump into a car with some young folks, man. We'd head out to the disco, man. He'd be out there dancing with the young folks. <laughs> or we'd go to a jazz club, man, and we'd be hanging out around the wall in the jazz club trying to be New York cool. And then, so, you know, Art's down there with the, uh, the, the, the uh, local musicians. He's on the stage with him. Right on. Waving, and he's waving us up to the stage. Come on, get your horn out. You know? <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> so, for something else. Yeah, that's cool, man. So what's the nicest thing a fan has ever said to you? Uh, maybe a couple things. Um, uh, your song, or the way you played that song made me cry. Mm-hmm. Or uh, that song was the song we played at our wedding. Or um, uh, the song you wrote, uh, I had a young man who uh, uh, committed suicide, and that's a suicide note, and he wanted one of my tracks played at his funeral. Wow. Even that, even that extent. And also, uh, when fans say, man, I heard, I, heard it, I heard the song on the radio, and uh, when I heard your, your sound, I knew it was you. Yeah. I said, that's got to be Bobby. That's Bobby. So when people can identify me by my sound, I think that's a high, high praise. Yeah, that's wonderful. So, you know, with, with your clout, your years, your wisdom in jazz and in life, you know, you're, you're a jazz force. And what inspires you to do that? I mean, you know, a lot of people live their lives out and don't get this shot and take it like you have. What makes you go? I think that um, I love music. Um, The music I play is called jazz, but I I love music, and I can't live without it, you know. I'm addicted to music, you know, and I just need it, and it's the way that I express myself. I'm not a politician. I'm not an athlete, um, but I'm a musician, and I have this need to uh, express my 
inner emotions that I think that I can't put into words uh, through my music. And, and I, I just love to try to affect people. Like Art says, uh, uh, music is supposed to wash away the dust of everyday life. Hmm. And great. so I'm really committed to that and also trying to uplift the musicians around me um, and uh, make them play at a, at a higher level uh, because I'm striving. And uh, it, it's just uh, it's vital to me. I mean, when, when I play my horn each day, it lets me know how I feel, yeah. what kind of day I'm having, you know. And it's a, sort of my health uh, barometer. Uh, what kind of day I'm having. Yeah. And so it's just, it's just, I can't, I can't separate it from rain, uh, the season changes, uh, the sounds of birds, and everything it just relates to music. And so I'm just, it's all consuming for me now. Right on. So as, as a leader, you've recorded 26 plus albums. Out of all of those albums, and you sit back and think about all of them, which one really strikes a very fond spot in your heart? Well, um, I would say there's a couple, a few maybe. Uh, Love Remains, another John Hicks on piano, Curtis Lundy on bass, Marvin Smitty Smith on drums. Uh, that got into the Penguin Guide of Jazz as a uh, core collection, something that's essential for any jazz collector to have. I'm very proud of that one. Um, Post Motown Bop uh, on Blue Note with Melton Mustafa and Carol Dashield, Edward Simon and Victor Lewis. Um, that was a really important one. Um, the Inventor, because uh, I used uh, a little bit of synth on that one, and I was trying to... Uh, 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 I felt that was kind of a... a I thought that was a little bit of a, a groundbreaker because I wasn't trying to go electric. I was just trying to add another color and use the uh, synth as orchestration because the sounds at that time were getting more natural and better. And um, I think uh, Midwest Shuffle, uh, the live record with Horizon, and also um, um, uh, Taylor May, the big band. Yeah. Right on. So let me ask you this. What's left to accomplish for you? I want to do a record with strings. I would like to have my music placed in a movie. Uh, I would like to uh, see more of my music choreographed with dancers. I would just like the music to spread outside of what they call the jazz world and have the music be uh, part of uh, people's memories. And uh, so that they would like to take the music and, and uh, do other things with my music. Right on. Uh, and write more big band charts and just keep trying to get better. Right on. Has jazz made the world a better place? Yes, it has. Absolutely. I'm a witness to that. I mean, we travel all around the world at other people's expense, making people feel good. And we are invited to play. Wherever we go, we're there by invitation. Uh, so we have an obligation to uh, uh, lift people's spirits. And jazz, uh, with Dizzy, uh, Louis Armstrong, our earliest ambassadors, 
that went around the world. I mean, I think uh, Louis had an ambassador uh, uh, status, you know, and so uh, the government realizes that jazz is a, the world language of today. We, I've been around these issues that we can't even really communicate with each other except on stage, you know, because I don't speak Italian or I don't speak Japanese or German. And then but we get on stage and that music is like our musical handshake and our hug. And we get together, man, we share things. So I, I believe it uh, from the bottom of my heart that jazz has and is making the world a better place. Right on. Let me ask you this. What is the greatest thing about Kansas City? <laughs> Interesting. Um, I think um, the thing about Kansas City is that it was, it was an open town under Pendergast. And we had over 500 jazz clubs here at one time. And, you know, it was during Prohibition, and it was an open town. And they gave the musician a chance to develop. They called Kansas City the Paris of the Plains. And I think Kansas City was the precursor to what Las Vegas is uh, back then. Before Las Vegas, it was Kansas City. And that was a really fertile environment. And also the church out here in Kansas City. A lot of musicians from Kansas City played, played in the church. And I think that's a very uh, important thing to mention about being from the Midwest is how heavy uh, the churches, we're in the Bible Belt, as they call it. And there's been many great musicians. I've heard some of the greatest musicians in church. And some of them stay in the church, and the other ones have uh, ventured out and became uh, 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 commercial artists, you know. But they all have this church root. And, uh, of course, the barbecue is fantastic here. Mm -hmm. But uh, musically, I think the environment is like a one of an open environment, you know. Uh, we honk it. We honk it. Not so much anymore, but back in the day, if somebody was driving the same car as you, you'd honk, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a real open, friendly, friendly place. And I think that uh, uh, Kansas City is like, uh, unique. So that's, this, is, this is where Swing started. Yeah. This is where Swing, the uh, Moton Swing, written by Benny Moten and his brother, Buster. That was the first time they, uh, uh, Joe Wilson told me this, that they had the word swing in the title, Moten Swing. Cool. And they had the 4-4 the four, four on the bass instead of the 2. The, the actual walking bass was started here. And uh, it grew up here. The jazz really grew up here and moved out. But Count Basie and the riffs and, and all the, the, the cutting sessions, and you know, it, it, it really... Like uh, 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 Congressman Cleaver said when he was mayor, he used to say, well, Jazz was born in New Orleans, but it grew up in Kansas City. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And from there, it just spread, you know? Right on. Man, that, that, that's a perfect way to end this interview. Bobby, thank you for your time. Thank you, Joe. Look forward to meeting you one of you days. Oh, without a doubt. In fact, I saw you play at Broadway Jazz with Herman during Chuck Haddock's uh, Bird Book oh, you, sign. You were there? Yeah, I was there. I, I ducked in with my son. All right, well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. Take care.
Thanks for listening and tuning into a very special Neon Jazz interview session where we give you a bit of insight into the legends that have given us all that jazz. And thanks to the legendary Bobby Watson for his time, determination, and love of Kansas City Jazz. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or you can visit theneonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.